Section 19 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Simon Parra. Chapter 5. National Opposition to Rome in Germany by A. F. Pollard. Part 3. Luther's seclusion at Warburg did not allay the intellectual ferment at Wittenberg, or impair the influence it exercised over the rest of Germany. At Wittenberg, both the university and the town defied alike the papal bull and the imperial edict. Scholars flocked to the university from all quarters, and it became the metropolis of the reforming movement. Melanchthon forsook the clouds of Aristophanes to devote himself to the epistles of St. Paul, and his Luci communes formed one of the most effective of Lutheran handbooks. But he lacked the force and decision of character to lead or control the revolutionary tendencies which were gathering strength, and Luther's place was taken by his old ally Karlstadt. Karlstadt was one of those acute intellects which earn for their possessors the reputation of being reckless agitators because they are too far in advance of their age, and the doubts which he entertained of the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch and of the identity of the Gospels as they then existed with their original form were considered to be evidence of the instability of his character rather than of the soundness of his reasoning faculties. He was not, however, free from personal vanity or jealousy of Luther, and his rival's absence afforded him the opportunity of appearing as the leader of the movement. Declining an invitation from Christian II to Denmark, he united with Gabriel Zwilling in an attempt to destroy what Luther had left of the papal system. He attacked clerical celibacy in a voluminous treatise, demanding that marriage should be made compulsory for secular priests and optional for monastics. He denounced the whole institution of monachism and pronounced the adoration of the Eucharist and private masses to be sinful. On December 3, 1521, there was a riot against the mass and the university demanded its abolition throughout the country. The town council refused its concurrence in this request, but on Christmas Day, Karlstadt administered the sacrament of the altar in both elements, omitting the preparatory confession, the elevation of the host, and the abominable canon, which implied that the celebration was a sacrifice. Zwilling next inveigh against the viaticum and extreme unction as being a financial trick on the part of the priests, and entered upon an iconoclastic campaign, inviting his hearers to burn the pictures in churches and to destroy the altars. Reminiscences of Hussite doctrine may have predisposed the Saxon population living on the borders of Bohemia in favor of Karlstadt's proceedings, and he was now reinforced by the influx from Zwickau of Nicolas Storch, Thomas Münzer, Marcus Studner, and their followers, whose views were of a distinctively Hussite, or rather Taborite, tendency. These prophets believed themselves to be under the direct influence of the Holy Spirit, and their immediate intercourse with the source of all truth rendered them independent of any other guidance, even that of the Scriptures. The free interpretation of the Bible, which seemed a priceless boon to Luther, 
was a poor thing to men who believed themselves to be at least as much inspired as its writers. From their repudiation of infant baptism on the grounds that a sacrament was void without faith and that infants could not have faith, they were afterward called Anabaptists, but they also held the tenets of the later fifth monarchy men in England. Like Luther, they believed in the unfree will, but they carried the doctrine to greater length, and unlike him, they found inspiration in the Apocalypse. They asserted the imminence of a bloody purification of the Church, and they endeavored to verify their prophecy by beginning with the slaughter of their opponents at Zwickau. The plot was, however, discovered, and Storch, Munzer, and Stubner fled to Wittenberg. Here, they joined hands with Karlstadt and Zwilling. Even Melanchthon was impressed by their arguments, and the elector Frédéric, mindful of Gamaliel's advice, refused to move against them. Early in 1522, iconoclastic riots broke out, priestly garments and auricular confession were disused. The abolition of the mendicant orders was demanded, together with the distribution of the property of the religious corporations among the poor. The influence of Taborite dogma was shown by the agitation for closing all places of amusement and the denunciation of schools, universities, and all forms of learning as superfluous in a generation directly informed by the Holy Ghost. The Wittenberg schoolmaster, Moch, himself, besought parents to remove their children from school. Students began to desert the university, and the new learning seemed doomed to end in the domination of fanatical ignorance, based on the brute force of the mob. In the Edict of Worms, Luther had been branded rather as a revolutionary than as a heretic, and the burden of the complaints preferred against him by the Catholic humanists was that his methods of seeking a reformation would be fatal to all order, political or ecclesiastical. They painted him as the apostle of revolution, a second Catilin, and the excesses at Wittenberg might well make them think themselves prophets. The moment was a crucial one. It was to decide whether or not the German Reformation was to follow the usual course of revolutions, devour its own children, and go on adopting ever extremer views till the day of reaction came. Of all the elements in revolt from Rome, Luther and his school were the most conservative, and upon question whether he would prevail against the extreme faction depended the success or failure of the German Reformation. The initial proceedings of Karlstadt had vexed Luther's soul, but he was violently antipathetic to the Zwickau enthusiasts. He vehemently repudiated their appeal to force in order to regenerate the church. He recalled the fact that by spiritual methods alone he had routed Tetzel and his minions and defied with impunity both emperor and pope. He probably foresaw that the reformation would be ruined by its association with the crude social democracy of Munzer and Storch, but in any case his personal instincts would alone have been sufficient to make him hostile, and when he had made up his mind to a course no considerations of prudence or his own safety would deter him from pursuing it. Braving the ban of the empire and disregarding the elector's stringent commands, he left the Wartburg and reappeared at Wittenberg on March 6, 1522. His action required at least as much courage as his journey to Worms, and the demonstration of his influence was far more striking. 
In a course of eight sermons, he rallied almost the whole of the town to his side. Zwilling confessed his errors, Karstadt, Munzer, and Stubner soon departed to labor in other fields, and most of the work of destruction was repaired. Luther himself retained his call and lived in the Augustinian monastery, and scope was afforded for every man's scruples regarding the Mass. In one church it was celebrated with all the old Catholic rites, in another the Eucharist was administered in one or in both forms according to individual taste and in a third the bread and the wine were always given to the laity luther had vindicated the conservative character of the reformation as he conceived it he had checked the swing of the pendulum in one direction and had thereby moderated the force of its recoil but he could not prevent it from swinging back altogether it had gone too far from that under the impetus supplied by himself and a reaction based upon real conviction was slowly developing itself and coming to the rescue of the storm-tossed Catholic Church. The first force to react under the antagonism produced by the rejection of Catholic dogma was the humanist movement. The body was shattered, and some of its members joined the doctrinal reformers, but the majority, including the great leader of the movement, took up a more and more hostile position. When Luther was thought to have been killed, many turned to Erasmus as Luther's successor. Give ear, thou knight errant of Christ, wrote Durer. Ride on by the Lord Christ's side. Defend the truth. Reach forth to the martyr's crown. But that was a crown which Erasmus never desired. Still less would he seek it in a cause which threatened to ruin his most cherished designs. Theology, he complained, bade fair to absorb all the humanities, and the theology of Luther was as hateful to him as that of Louvain. The dogmas, which appealed to men of the iron caste of Luther and Calvin, repelled cultured men of the world like Erasmus, for scholars and artists are essentially aristocratic in temperament, and firmly attached to the doctrine of individual merit, which Luther and Calvin denied. While Luther adopted the teaching of St. Augustine, Erasmus was regarded at Wittenberg as little better than a Pelagian, and his personal conflict with Hutten was soon followed by a more important encounter with Luther. Urged by Catholics to attack the new theology, Erasmus, with intuitive skill, selected the doctrine of free will, which he asserted in a treatise of great moderation. Luther's reply was remarkable for the unflinching way in which he accepted the logical consequences of his favorite dogma. But that did not make it more palatable, and Erasmus's book confirmed not a few in their antipathy to the Lutheran cause. These were by no means blind partisans of the papacy. Murner, the scholar and poet, Jérôme Emser, the secretary to Duke George of Saxony, Cochleus, Heinlein von Stein, Alexander Hagius, Luther's old master Staupitz, Karl von Miltitz, Johann Faber, Pirkheimer, and many others had long desired a reformation of the church, but they looked to a general council and legal methods. Revolution and disruption they considered too great price to pay for reform, and therefore sadly threw in their lot with the forces which were preparing to do battle for the Catholic Church purified or corrupt. Slowly, also, a section of the German laity began to range itself on the same side, 
and from the confused melee of public opinion, two organized parties gradually emerged. Here and there, this or that form of religious belief obtained a decisive predominance and began to control the organization of a city or principality in the interests of one or the other party. An infinity of local circumstances contributed to each local decision. Dynastic conditions might assist a prince to determine with which religious party to side, and relations with a neighboring bishop or even trading interests might exert a similar influence over the corporate conscience of cities. But with regard to Germany as a whole, and with a few significant exceptions, the frontiers of the Latin Church ultimately coincided to a remarkable extent with those of the old Roman Empire. Where the legions of the Caesars had planted their standards and founded their colonies, where the Latin speech and Latin civilization had permeated the people, there in the 16th century the Roman Church retained its hold. The limits of the Roman Empire are in the main the boundaries between Teutonic and Latin Christianity. But Latin Christianity saved itself in southern Germany only by borrowing some of the weapons of the original opponents of Rome and the Counter-Reformation owed its success to its adoption of many of the practical proposals and some of the doctrinal ideas of the Reformation. The confiscation of church property and the limitation of clerical prerogative went on apace in Catholic as well as in Protestant countries, and while the spiritual prerogative of the papacy was magnified at the Council of Trent, its practical power declined. It secured secular aid by making concessions to the secular power. The earliest example of this process was seen in Bavaria. Originally, Bavaria had been as hostile to the church as any other part of Germany, and no attempt was there made to execute the Edict of Worms. But what others sought by hostility to the papacy, the Dukes of Bavaria won by its conciliation, and between 1521 and 1525, a firm alliance was built up between the Pope and the Dukes on the basis of papal support for the Dukes even against their bishops. Adrian VI granted them a fifth of all ecclesiastical revenues within their dominions, a source of income which henceforth remained one of the chief pillars of the Bavarian financial system, and another bull empowered the temporal tribunals to deal with heretics without the concurrence of the Bavarian bishops, who resented the ducal intrusion into their jurisdictions. The territorial ambitions of the dukes was thus gratified, and the grievances of the laity against the church were to some extent satisfied by the adoption of measures intended to reform clerical morals, and they both were thus inclined to defend Catholic dogma against Lutheran heresy. A similar grant of church revenues to the Archduke Ferdinand for use against the Turk facilitated a like result, and Austria and Bavaria became the bulwarks of the Catholic Church in Germany. Other Catholic princes like Duke George of Saxony maintained the faith with more disinterested motives, but with less permanent success, while the ecclesiastical electors of Mainz, Trier and Cologne were prevented by Lutheran sympathies in the chapters or in the cities of the dioceses from playing the vigorous part in opposition to the national movement which might otherwise have been expected from them. A like process of crystallization pervaded the reforming party. In 1524, Luther effected the final conversion of the elector Friedrich of Saxony, and his brother John, who succeeded him in the following year, was already a Lutheran. In the same year, the youthful and warlike Landgrave Philip of Hesse 
was won over by Melanchthon and enjoined the preaching of the gospel throughout his territories. Margrave Casimir of Brandenburg took a similarly decisive step in concurrence with his estates at Bayreuth in October. The banished Duke Ulrich of Württemberg was also a convert, and Duke Ernest of Lüneburg, a nephew of the elector Frédéric, began a reformation at Selle in 1524. Charles V's sister Isabella listened to Osiander's exhortations at Nuremberg and adopted the new ideas and her husband, Christian II of Denmark, invited Luther in Karlstadt to preach in his kingdom. He was soon deprived of his throne, but his successor, Frédéric I, adopted a similar religious attitude and promoted the spread of reforming principles in Denmark and in his duchies of Schwanzweg and Holstein. The Grandmaster of the Teutonic Order, Albrecht of Brandenburg, had also been influenced by Osiander, and, turning his new faith to practical account, he converted the possessions of the order into the hereditary duchy of Prussia, a fief of the Polish crown, which received at once a purified religion and a new constitution. In the neighboring duchy of Pomerania, the Catholic Bogislav X was succeeded in 1523 by his two sons, George and Barnim, of whom the latter was Lutheran. The feeble government established at the Diet of Worms in 1521 was quite unable to control the growing cleavage in the nation into two religious parties, but it made some efforts to steer a middle course and it reflected with some fidelity the national hostility to the papal curia. It had met the Diet for the first time in February 1522, and it entertained some hopes that the new pope, Adrian VI, would do something to meet the long list of gravamina, which had been drawn up in the previous year and sent to Rome for consideration. But it was late in the summer before Adrian reached the Vatican, and his policy could not be announced to the Diet until his next meeting in November. The papal nuncio was Francesco Ciergatti, an experienced diplomatist, and he came with a conciliatory message. He said nothing about Luther in his first speech to the Diet, and in an interview with Planitz, the elector Frederick's chancellor, he admitted the existence of grave abuses in the papacy and the partial responsibility of Leo X for them. Nor did he deny that Luther had done good work in bringing these abuses to light. Though, of course, the monks' attack on the sacraments, on the fathers of the church, and on councils could not be tolerated. But this peaceful atmosphere did not endure. Adrian seems to have come to the conclusion that his instructions to Chiregatti did not lay sufficient emphasis on papal dignity, and a brief which he addressed to his nuncio on November 25th was much more minatory. His threats were conveyed to the Diet by Chiregatti's speech on January 3rd, 1523. Luther was denounced as worse than the Turk, and was accused of not merely polluting Germany with his heresy, but of aiming at the destruction of all order and property. The estates were reminded of the end of Dathan and Abiram, of Ananias and Sapphira, of Jerome and Hus. If they separated themselves from God's holy church, they might incur a similar fate. Yet the Pope did not deny the abuses of which complaint had been made, 
and his frank acknowledgement of them supplied the Diet with a cue for the answer. They refused Nuncio's demand that the Lutheran preachers of Nuremberg should be seized and sent to Rome, and appointed a committee to deal with the question. This body reported that the Pope's acknowledgement of the existence of abuses made it impossible to proceed against Luther for pointing them out, and it carried war into the enemy's territory by demanding that the Pope should surrender German annates to be appropriated to German national purposes and summon a council in which the laity were to be represented to sit in some German town and deal with the ecclesiastical situation. This report met with some opposition from the elector Joachim of Brandenburg, Duke George of Saxony, and the Archduke Ferdinand. But the modifications adopted by the Diet did not seriously alter its import. The elector Frederick was to be asked to restrain Luther, but probably no one anticipated that his efforts, if he made any, would be successful. No steps were to be taken to execute the Edict of Worms or to silence the reformers. The Diet reiterated its hundred gravamina, and although no approbation was expressed of Luther and his cause, the outlawed monk had as much reason to be pleased with the result of the Diet as Chiregati had to be discontented. Before the Diet assembled again, the reforming Adrian had gone the way of his predecessors, and popular feeling at Rome toward reform was expressed by the legend inscribed on the door of the dead Pope's physician Libriatori Patriae. Another Medici sat on the throne of Leo X, and religious reform was exchanged for family politics. But even Clement VII felt the necessity of grappling with the German problem, and Lorenzo Campeggio was sent to the Diet which again met at Nuremberg in January 1524. As he entered Augsburg and gave his benediction to the crowd, he was met with jeers and insults. At Nuremberg, which he reached on March 16th, the princes advised him to make a private entry for fear of hostile demonstrations, and on Maundy Thursday, under his very eyes, 3,000 people, including the emperor's sister, received the communion in both forms. His mission seemed a forlorn hope, but there were a few breaks in the gloom. The Reich Regiment, which had on the whole been more advanced in religious opinion than the Diets, had lost the respect of the people. The repudiation of its authority by the towns, the knights, and several of the princes, with the encouragement of the emperor, indicated the speedy removal of this shield of Lutheranism, and the vote of censure carried against the government seemed to open the door to reaction. Campeggio accordingly again demanded the execution of the Edict of Worms, and he was supported by Charles V's Chancellor, Hanart, who had been sent from Spain to aid the cities in their resistance to the financial proposals of the Reich Regiment. But the cities, in spite of their repudiation of Lutheranism in Spain, were now indignant at the idea of enforcing the Edict of Worms, and the Diet itself was angry because Campeggio brought no other answer to its repeated complaints than the statement that the Holy Father could not believe such a document to be the work of the estates of the Holy Roman Empire. So, the old struggle was fought over again, and the inevitable compromise differed only in shades of meaning from that of the previous year. 
the edict should indeed be executed as well as they were able and as far as was possible but the estates did not profess any greater ability than before a general council was again demanded and pending its not very probable or speedy assemblage a national synod was to be summoned to meet at spierre in november and there make an interim settlement of all the practical and doctrinal questions at issue the prospect of such a meeting alarmed both pope and emperor more than all the demands for a general council for in a general council the germans would be a minority and general councils afforded unlimited scope for delay but a german synod would mean business and its business was not likely to please either clement or charles it would probably organize a german national church with slight dependence on rome it might establish a national government with no more dependence on charles both these threatened interests took action the pope instigated henry the eighth to take away from the german merchants of the steelyard their commercial privileges and to urge upon charles the prohibition of their meeting at spierre he also suggested the deposition of the elector frederic as a warning to other rebellious princes the emperor was nothing loth on july fifteen he forbade the proposed assembly at spierre and although there is no evidence that he would have proceeded to so dangerous and violent a measure as the deposition of frederic he broke off former friendly relations and insulted the whole saxon house by marrying his sister catherine to king john of portugal instead of to frederic's nephew john frederic to whom she had been betrothed as the price of the elector's support of charles's candidature for the empire in fifteen nineteen before the news of these steps had reached germany both sides had begun preparation for the struggle campeggio had been empowered in case of the failure of his mission to the diet to organize a sectional gathering of catholic princes in order to frustrate the threatened national council this assembly the first indication of the permanent religious disruption of germany met at ratisbon towards the end of june its principal members were the archduke ferdinand the two dukes of bavaria and nine bishops of southern germany and the anti-national character of the meeting was emphasized by the abstinence of every elector lay or clerical it was however something more than a particularist gathering it sought to take the wind out of the sails of the reformation by reforming the church from within and it was in fact a counter-reformation in miniature the spiritual lords consented to pay a fifth of their revenues to the temporal authority as the price of the suppression of lutheran doctrine the grievances of the laity with respect to clerical fees and clerical morals were to some extent redressed the excessive number of saints days and holy days was curtailed the use of excommunication and interdict for trivial matters was forbidden and while the reading of lutheran books was prohibited preachers were enjoined to expound the scriptures according to the teaching not of medieval schoolmen but of the great fathers of the church cyprien chrysotom augustine jerome ambrose and gregory act published a collection of loci communes to counteract melanchthon's and emser 
a version of the Bible to correct Luther's, and a systematic persecution of heretics was commenced in the territories of the parties to the conference. Meanwhile, in ignorance of the impending blow, the greater part of Germany was preparing for the National Council or Synod at Spierre. The news of the convention at Ratisbon stimulated the reformers' zeal. The cities held meeting first at Spierre and then at Ulm, where they were joined by representatives of the nobles of the Rhine districts, the Eiffel, Wetterau, and Westerwald. They bound themselves to act together and ordered preachers to confine themselves to the gospel and the prophetic and apostolic scriptures. These gatherings represented but a fraction of the strength of the party of doctrinal reform. The almost simultaneous adoption of Lutheranism by Prussia, Silesia, and part of Pomerania by Brandenburg, Kulmbach, and by Hesse, Brunswick, Lüneburg, Schleswig, and Holstein proves that the proposed National Council at Spierre would have commanded the allegiance of the greater part of North Germany and might, through its adherence in great cities like Strasbourg, Augsburg, and Ulm, have swept even the south within the net of a national revolt from Rome. That consummation was postponed by the united action of Charles, of Clement, and of the princes and bishops at Ratisbon. But the empire was riven in twain, and while the rival parties were debating each other's destruction, the first rumblings were heard of a storm which threatened to overwhelm them both in a common ruin. The peasants to whom scores of ballads and satires had lightly appealed as the arbiter of the situation was coming to claim his own, and the social revolution was at hand. End of section 19